Welcome everybody uh, to another episode of Ten Thousand Roads to Financial Independence. Uh, today, uh, I have Anna Kelly coming from San Antonio to share with us her experience of owning more than a thousand two hundred doors and uh, a portfolio size of hundred sixty million dollars uh, in multifamily uh, throughout syndication and uh, JV potentially. Um, and Anna, Anna really kind of does everything in this business. Usually we kind of talk about the roles and separations uh, in terms of doing multifamily and business management, uh, but Anna kind of does it all. So we're gonna dive into really deep about the systems and et cetera she has in place. But first we wanna talk about um, her childhood influence to uh, who she become, who she is. Um, so Anna, we always ask our guests this question to start, uh, just to kind of break the ice. Um, who would you say is someone or someones um, that really gives you a big influence growing up uh, to install the idea of like, I can be an entrepreneur or I can be a free spirit uh, in a way that uh, like a successful entrepreneur as you are that needed, yeah. To be honest with you, Eliza, I didn't have when I was growing up that that knew anything about money. So you mentioned San Antonio. I grew up in Section 8 housing in San Antonio, Texas. Mm -hmm. My mom was a single mom. Um, she had a couple of on and off abusive marriages. And, you know, so was a, a single at times and in bad marriages at other times. She was a leasing agent uh, at our section apartment complex. Mm -hmm. So we lived in a free apartment. And she worked nights as a waitress to just to make ends meet and to provide for us. So I really didn't know anybody that had money or knew anything about money. I, I got from my mother, you know, working hard and that I needed to, to be the best at everything I could. Mm -hmm. I needed to get a good education so that I could get a college degree so that I would never have to depend on a man to take care of me. Right. And that I could take care of myself. And so the only thing I really knew is I had to be determined and driven to get out of the cycle of poverty, to get an education. And I thought at that point, the answer was get an education, work a W-2 all my life and have financial independence. Wow. That's a phenomenal story by itself. Like we definitely wanted to, you know, invite you back for our, some other podcast on that. Um, and so- sure. So you got a W-2 job because even coming from that family background to stay focused on studying, et cetera, is very difficult. Um, and, but against all odds, you made it, uh, you're working a W-2 job. Um, how, how did that work? Because where did you work and um, how did kind of transition coming from uh, that to investment come about? Sure. Yeah, I will say too, I moved in with my dad and my stepmom when I was a teenager and they both had, you know, traditional blue collar jobs. My dad was in construction. My stepmom was a school teacher and she also very much instilled, you've got to get an education. So whatever you do, you can move out, you can be on your own, whatever you do, do not drop out of college, get that education and become independent, right? financially independent from other people. Um, they didn't know really or, or talk to me about investments because they never invested. They just had their retirement, right? right? So during college, I worked full-time and I went to school full-time at night. And that gave me a little bit of an edge when I came out of school because I already had um, what it took to be able to work and go to school and still make good grades. Yeah. And that, that basically landed me an interview 
um, solicited. Uh, someone from Bank of America had heard about me and uh, through college and somebody that I worked with and said, you know, you're exactly what we want in our financial advisory program. So, you know, you have a degree in business, we'll teach you about investments and we'll teach you how to teach other people about investments and have them bring their money to our bank to teach them how to grow their wealth, right? Yeah. So I worked for Bank of America in private banking for two years. And it really wasn't until I was in that position that I ever started to think about wealth outside of just, you know, working a full-time job my whole life and retiring. Right. And it was interesting, Eliza, because all through college and even through my financial advisory training, I didn't learn anything about how do I budget my own money? How do I master my money? And how can I develop the kind of wealth that my clients have? I just knew once you have money, I can teach you how to invest it and make it grow. Yeah. Um, and, and I know a lot about general investment principles. And so that's really where I had my first aha moment that, you know, real estate is something that wealthy people have. Um, and some of my clients, while we were talking to them about traditional retail investments, I had one in particular that laughed when I told him we could make him 12% returns back in the, the late nineties. Yeah. And he said, I make much more than that in my real estate investments. Yeah. I'm like, huh, wealthy people have real estate. I've never been taught anything about real estate, but I need to learn a little bit more about it and maybe buy some someday. Right, right. So it's kind of through osmosis over there. Um, that's phenomenal because I think a lot of entrepreneurs we interview, uh, the path that they went through is that there is a sacrifice that they firstly made. So in your case, you're kind of working two jobs at a time. Um, and uh, that kind of equipped you for later on, uh, you know, the entrepreneur um road that, that you, you chose to be. So how did the, your first investment goes? Like, tell us a little bit about your first investment. So my first investment was a very humble investment, right? I realized because I was learning about money and I was learning that I needed to be more frugal. I thought, Eliza, when I got my job in private banking, at the time I was 22 or 23, and very young, and I was started out making like $60,000 a year. And this was 20 years ago, 23 years ago. So I thought, wow, this is awesome. I went out right away and got a car. And then I, you know, I spent lots of money and went out with my friends and ate out. And I really, I mean, I thought I was rich, right? So I wasn't very frugal and I wasn't budgeting, but I knew in talking to my clients about money that I needed to start living below my means. And one of those things was not paying for an apartment anymore. So I paid a lot of money for an apartment in Houston, Texas at that time. And I decided, I think it would be wiser to buy a condo. If I buy a condo, I'll own it. My living expenses will be cut in half in terms of my rent. And one day I'll keep this as a rental property whenever I get married and you know buy a house one day. So my first investment really was not an investment thinking I'm going to become wealthy through real estate. It was an investment to say real estate is something that can lower my cost of living. And one day I can have a tenant that'll pay it down and pay it off. And so that was my very first investment. That's awesome. And now looking back 20 years later, would you still make the same move uh, for that time? Absolutely. I would have made the same move. What I would not have done was follow the American dream that I had been sold. And as soon as I got married, bought a bigger house so that we could have a baby, right? I got the, the fancy house. 
not the fancy car. And then when I had a baby, I had debt on that mortgage and debt on that car that prevented me from being able to stay home with him because I had a really good job, a six figure paying job at that point. And, but yet I, I couldn't quit because I had created this lifestyle where my expenses were more than I could afford. If I were to live just on my husband's salary, he was a new college graduate uh, as a chiropractor. And we had six figure school debt when he came out of school. So we had a brand new house, two cars, a school payment and a new baby. And because we bought that house and, and we're sold that American dream that that's what we're supposed to do before we have a kid. Yeah. It really kept me from my dream of, of being home with my kids. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so you bought the condo before you have the baby. Did you make a couple other investments or you kind of just coast it a little bit? No, I was very career motivated to move up the corporate ladder. By this point, I had left Bank of America and I started to work for AIG Life Insurance Company, one of the largest in the country. And I worked in their product development area where we developed products for ultra high net worth individuals. And I was very upwardly motivated. I thought, you know, investing in real estate is something to do, right? But right now I just focus on my career and making as much money as I can. So it wasn't really till I had that baby, Eliza, that I went, wait a second, I've got this great six-figure career. I'm moving up the corporate ladder. But as a latchkey kid myself, I did not want someone else raising my child. And I thought, I've got to find a way to replace my six-figure income so that I can be home with my kids. And that was the motivation and the impetus that made me think, wait a second, all these shows on HGTV are showing me that I could flip a couple houses and that I could replace my six-figure income. Let's try it. So with my baby, three months old, he had been a, pre- a preemie and had some health issues. Three months old, we, we bought a house and we decided to flip a property, convinced that flipping a few houses a year would be the way that I could stay home with my kiddo. So that was my next big investment was a, a, a house flip. Flipping. Yeah. So um, what about that business? So you, you saw this on TV and what's the process of you kind of get it into that? Like, um, and then what, what would you, uh, you know, advise to our listener over here? Is that a path you would have took, uh, you know, looking back again? Yeah. You know, I, I don't look back and say I should have done it differently because you learn so much from what you do, right? It was my worst investment, but it was also my best investment looking back as well. So we were crazy to buy a house, not know anything about construction, not know how to value comps, not know contractors. But I thought if they can do it on TV, I'm smart. I can figure it out. Right. So I jumped without any information and education. We didn't know that we were at the height of the economy and there were so many things that we didn't know, right? So in a nutshell, it took us a year to sell that property and we lost $10,000. During that time, we had two mortgages, two car payments, my husband's six-figure school loan, and he lost a job. It was really tight. I thought, what have we done? We're going under, you know, and it was really tough, but I learned a lot of really valuable lessons about real estate. And 
Unfortunately, at that point, my husband said, we are never doing that again. Right. Right. So we were like, okay, we're not doing that again. My husband's not on board. And so at that point, Eliza, I thought, okay, flipping isn't the way for us, but I have to be home with my kiddo. So it must be entrepreneurship. That's what we need to do. Yeah. So I told my husband, okay, honey, if you work for other chiropractors, you're always going to make 30 or $40,000 a year. If you want to make six figures, you've got to start your own business. So let's go to Pennsylvania, back at his hometown, and we'll start your own practice there. And I was convinced in a year, his, his practice would make so much money that I'd be able to finally stay home with my kiddos. So enter real estate round three. When we moved to Pennsylvania, we sold our house in Texas and I begged AIG to let me work from home. And at that point in 2007, they had no work from home employees. I was the pioneer for the company. They said, we will give you three to six months to see if it was right. So coming to Pennsylvania, I knew we're starting a new business to the tune of $400,000 in debt, plus the building we were buying. I might not have my job for very long. We have to do something that's safe and keeps a roof over our head. So my wheels were turning, Eliza, about real estate. And I said, okay, I can buy a practice. I can buy a building that has tenants in it that will help cover the cost of the building rather than leasing space. And up here in the Northeast, a lot of our businesses on Main Street in these towns are a business on the bottom level with apartments above. So we bought a mixed use building that was a commercial property with three apartments and four garages. Not again, because I thought real estate was the way, but because I knew buying those properties and having tenants would help us to pay down the mortgage um, if he didn't make money for a while. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there was a little four unit apartment building for sale. Growing up in second eight apartments, even though I had a beautiful home in Texas, I knew that contentment wasn't based on the size of my house. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if I wanted to be safe, I had to take a step back in order to move forward. And I said, let's buy that four unit. We'll live in the two bedroom apartment. We'll rent out the other three. And if I lose my job in a few months at AIG and your business doesn't do well, we will have just enough coming in from those tenants that we can have zero cost of living other than our groceries and diapers. And so we became landlords by necessity as a protectionary move. Not again, because I thought real estate was the way to financial freedom. It was the corporate job and then it was entrepreneurship and real estate was just the thing that helped us to make wise financial moves in the process. That's amazing though, because I think you touched on here, you really looking at real estate the right way, which is it's an investment. So it needs to generate some sort of cash flow right there. You know, oftentimes when we talk to as our listeners or, or, you know, our investors, um, it's the other way around. Like it's like, oh, it's nice extra. So we invest only in equity and there's no cash flow. So it puts them in a position that's pretty vulnerable, especially when the economy is kind of down. So there's definitely, guys, like definitely listen to this part. You know, it, it is um, so, so important that you touch on being in a cash flow business. And then the fact that you can actually find these deals. <laughs> so how did you actually? You know, yeah. The really thing, the really thing that was amazing and, and that became my aha moment was that year, my husband's business did really well from 2007 to mid 2008. AIG said, you're doing great from home. We'll let you keep your job. And my rental properties were cash flowing, right? So we were doing really well. 
Little did we know that six months later, the entire economy would collapse. Give me a second. My uh, my daughter is singing on karaoke. I need to go get her stuff. <laughs> Give me a second. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, working for all right. I'm back. Okay, no <laughs> problem. What is no problem. I couldn't hear it, so it makes you feel oh, better. That's good. Okay, you want me to just pick up there? Yes. Um. So let's kind of start with the. Uh. Basically, we kind of talk about the cash flow. So let's kind of like a rewind back to that. Um. How did you find your house? I think that's where we at. Yes. <laughs> okay. Great. So one of the things that was amazing, Eliza, is I had thought, you know, everything's going great. My husband's business is going great from 2007 to 2008. AIG decided to let me continue to work from home. And we had this cash flow coming in from these apartments. And I thought, okay, we're on the right path. And any, you know, any day I'll be able to retire and have my husband's business, you know, take care of us. Well, little did we know six months later, 2008 to early 2009, the whole economy would crash, right. not just the Pennsylvania economy, but the U.S. economy. Real estate crashed. AIG almost went out of business and had a multi-billion dollar debt loan from the government. Right. I was told, Anna, you're going to lose your job. Everybody's going to probably be laid off. And then healthcare changed and my husband's business started to really struggle. So we had this kind of breakdown for a week where I lost two thirds of my 401k, what I had been taught would be really safe. Wow. was about to lose my job. I thought, and my husband's business, they basically quit covering healthcare when Obamacare came in, quit covering chiropractic for the most part. Oh. Um, everything was really struggling. And I thought, man, we've done everything we knew to be financially wise and yep. we're about to lose everything. Right. Right. But we had this aha moment. The only thing that was going well that wasn't impacted was my tenants were still paying rent. The rental income was still coming in consistently. We couldn't control what happened with my husband's business, couldn't control what happened at AIG, but we could control that we could collect those checks. And I knew then that when I lost most of my 401k in financial companies who were not going to be coming back, it wasn't just going to bounce back. I did what every financial advisor says not to do. And I took the rest of my 401k, I borrowed it for myself, and I used it as a down payment on another four-unit apartment building. Because I thought if I lose my job at AIG, I can create an extra $1,500 to $1,600 a month by buying this little four-unit, and we will be able to cover our basic living expenses and a little extra. And I knew from that moment that in order for me to have financial freedom that I could depend on, I couldn't depend on entrepreneurship or a job. I had to take control of my finances and I knew I needed to create more cash flow by buying bigger properties. So it was then in 2009 that I really became fully focused on achieving financial freedom and financial independence through real estate. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and it is born out of necessity. Now, I got to ask this that by now our listener viewers going to have this question, like what going through all these down moments, a lot of people will be down and they wouldn't get up. Like even your husband was saying, we're not ever doing this again. So what kind of mental 
uh, <laughs> I don't want to say mental drop, but mindset that you're kind of going through to prepare yourself to be resilient in these situations. It's a choice. And I think in some ways, starting out with a very rough childhood, I developed grit and determination like most people don't, right? If you're handed an easy life and the easy button, one big hurdle can knock you down, right? Yeah. I learned that I have to be able to pick myself up, be determined to overcome anything that comes so that I can be okay. And so that helped me, right? I lost, you know, I lost jobs. My husband lost a job during that flip, you know, things weren't going well, but I knew my choices in, in Texas, there's a, a saying um, that when you get in the mud, just don't wallow, like you're going to get dirty. But if you wallow in the mud, you're going to get stuck in the mud and it's become like quicksand. So I, I heard that phrase. I think my stepmom said that to me one point, you know, when things, when, when something really challenging happened in my life. And I thought, okay, I, I can get in the mud. I can cry. I did cry a lot, um, but I can't wallow in it. I have a choice to get back up and get through it or it's going to overtake me. Yeah. So it's just when you're in those moments, they'll make you or break you, Eliza. And I will say that for a couple of years, I knew that I wanted more real estate, right? So I bought that third building, that four unit. Yeah. But after that, the bank said no. So it was I thought, I've got an idea. I'll just buy more real estate. Well, then I had the challenge of real estate was collapsing and the banks didn't want to lend to me, right? So right. I was told over and over, no, 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 you're too much of a risk. You work for AIG and you buy real estate. No way. So I had to not only become resilient and develop grit, but I had to have determination that I wasn't going to let no stop me and that there had to be another way. So yeah. my mindset, I think my superpower at the time was not, not to take no and to take these things as the end, but to make it a challenge for, I want to be home with my kids so desperately right. that I will do whatever it takes with integrity in order to find another way around the hurdle so that we can be okay. Yeah. And, and I think that was the mindset that allowed me to continue to push forward and get creative so that I could find ways to do real estate um, when everything was going against me. Yeah, so you touched upon really great um, point over there because a lot of um, investors haven't gone through a full, like, you know, a down cycle yet, but which you did. And then during then, the money is really cheap to borrow, but the um, qualification to borrow them is nearly darn impossible. Um, so how did you get around yeah. that particular challenge and then be able to kind of move forward with your investment career? So back then, you know, 2009, there wasn't much available on in, in resources online, no Facebook groups, nothing like that, right? I knew nobody in my local area that was an investor in real estate. What I did find was bigger pockets. So I went on bigger pockets and everybody was like, how do we buy? real estate when there's no banks that are lending. And there were a couple people, I don't even remember who, that were talking about learn creative financing. You'll have to find off-market deals and try to get sellers to sell it to you without going bank. And you make them payments um, and then eventually you pay them off. So I listened to a couple blogs or watched a couple blog posts and, and, and somebody had like, if you ask a seller to finance you, you can save them on their capital gains. And you can give them an income stream. And those are the two biggest things that they don't like when they're retiring is they're going to give up the income to right. the government and then they're going to give up the income stream. So I thought this will never work. But I was like, 
I'm stuck. I have no other choice. Let's try it. You know, worst case, they can say no. And that's another one of the things that I think I've always had is I've always gone for things that were a challenge that I was a little afraid of. I knew I didn't have the experience, but I knew I could learn, right? The very first time that I decided I can't be alone on an island and do this all by myself. I've got to find some people that know real estate and I've got to figure out how to use creative financing. I decided to go to a local real estate networking event. I went to this event and that night, wouldn't you know, an older gentleman stood up and said, I've got a building I want to sell in this little town that I live in. And I walked up and said, would you consider seller financing? He goes, yeah, I'd consider that. My jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it. I thought, no way. This is the answer to my prayers. So I set up a meeting with him to go look at his four unit property the next day. And that night I got on the internet and I researched seller financing and I researched the tax consequences of seller financing. I put together a proposal, did my comps. I knew exactly what I could pay, what I was going to offer. And we walked the property. I invited him for coffee after. And I, and he asked me, why do you want to buy this building? And I said, I am doing real estate so that I can get home with my kiddos. I have a six figure job. I'm stable. I have a good credit. I just need to be able to take down properties and banks won't lend. Um, I'm willing to sign a personal guarantee. And he said, I love what you're doing and and I'll help you. I'd love to do it. And right there, we structured a seller finance deal. I needed $10,000 down, which I did not have. Mm -hmm. I called my dad for the very first time and asked to borrow money, but I pitched it as an investment. Mm -hmm. Hey, Papa, if I can borrow $10,000 and you'll be my private lender, I'll give you a note and I'll pay you 10% interest only money on your money. Well, that was really good in a collapsing economy. And he knew that I had a few properties and he said, okay, I'll do it. So my dad gave me the 10,000, the the seller financed the rest. And once I closed that deal, I thought that was so easy. I will do it again and again and again. And within three months, I had three more four unit properties under contract, thanks to creative seller financing. That's amazing. Um, And so you're doing fourplexes at one point you have graduated and starting doing larger apartment buildings. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Sure. So Eliza, basically from 2007 through 2018, I worked full-time. I helped my husband with his chiropractic business, the hiring, the billing, and and trying to keep it afloat during the recession. And by this point, I had four kids. So I was working 70 to 80 hours a week for years for a decade, right? People think, wow, you've done so well in such a short amount of time. But really that 10 year period was the hardest period. And at that point, all I owned was four unit buildings. But I can tell you that there's a lot of people that they turn their nose up at the small stuff and think they have to start big with a huge apartment building. I created a multi-million dollar net worth and replaced a six figure income on just my own four unit apartment buildings that I owned hundred percent of my husband and I with no partners and, right. and without going really big. That was all I needed to replace the six-figure income and retire. But six months before I decided to retire, at this point, we're talking the end of the 18. Mm-hmm. I knew that when I retire, I'm not going to sit back and eat bonbons, right? And, <laughs> and just coast. At that point, all four of my children were in school. So this dream of being an at-home, you know, stay-at-home mom didn't materialize that way. They're in school. 
So I thought, what am I going to do with my day while they're in school? Well, I want to give back and I want a legacy and I want to do more. Right. So I knew that was the time that I had proven myself enough that now banks were calling me wanting to lend me money that I had done it all on my own with my husband. Okay. He did the maintenance and construction and I did all the other stuff. I knew that I can do this. I have at that point, I had 70 units on our own. And I said, if I can do this across multiple properties, I can do it on a larger single location property and do it with partner. So I knew that before I quit, I wanted to have my first larger multi-unit under contract and done, and then I would retire. So I found a 73 unit apartment building and I reached out to two partners and we did it together as a joint venture. And when I did that first 73 unit apartment building, I said, okay, I can do this. And at that point, I gave my notice to retire um, from AIG. I was there for 20 years through all of the ups and downs. Yeah. And I retired in May of 2018. And by then, I had had a second larger multi-unit property under contract. That was a 31-unit, so a joint venture. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I knew now it's time for me to start you know, doing some bigger deals, joint ventures, and syndications. So it's really in the last two years that I've gone from 60 units to uh, 1,200 units Mm -hmm. while I had 100% focus not working the full-time job anymore. That's amazing. Um, And you you touched on so many points. There's so much much to unpack over here for our viewer. And then that's definitely agree with you. I think the fourplexing, et cetera, equipped you to not only um, on understanding the finance and et cetera, economics of the finance and et cetera, but also probably you were, you were managing them yourself, right? Like, or through a PM, like were you self-managing these as well? Yes. We self-managed them as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So there's so tons the of learning, right. Coming from that. Yeah. Um, and then which equips you uh, so much better. It's not always like who gets to that angle faster, but it's like how solid your foundations are make sure that the buildings right. up is a very solid over there. Um, now, tell yeah. me- And I'm so thankful for that time because that 10 years is really what made me an experienced, wise investor. Uh-huh. We went through lots of ups and downs on those properties. I mean, I've had fires, we've had major mold claims, um, we've had roof damages, we've had flooding, we've had tenant, we've had um, um, squatters and hoarders and, dead animals in the walls, like you name it, we went through it, right? We've been through ups and downs of the economy. And when you do that, at the time, it seems so hard and you think, I'm never going to get ahead. This is never going to pay off. And you blink and it's, it's done. But that's where you gain the wisdom to be able to take on larger deals with confidence and to bring in investors into those deals with confidence. In the beginning, I wouldn't have brought in investors because I didn't know what I didn't know. Now I've learned a lot and I'm, I'm thankful for those small properties because they're what gave me the, the wisdom and the experience to take down the larger ones much more quickly. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, tell us a little bit more about your first commercial building. For listener over here that's interested in kind of bridging the gap between residential lending, which fourplexes still are, to commercial multifamily owning, what is the biggest lessons that you learned there? You know, there, there's a lot of people that will say commercial lending is easier. In some ways it is, um, in some ways it's not, right? So 
commercial, I, most of my four unit properties, I couldn't get Fannie Mae, you know, single investor, 30 year mortgages when I was in the situation that I was. I always went to small banks to their commercial loan department. So I did commercial loans, even on my four unit apartment buildings, but those smaller banks are going to underwrite you just as heavily as they underwrite the property, right? Right. Once you get into five units plus, their primary underwriting the property is the property going to cash flow. And if Anna can't handle it or she something happens to her and we have to take it over, can right. we cash flow until we sell it? So they are looking more at the property than they're looking at you, but they still want you to be um, stable. They want you to have more reserves. So the more properties I buy, on the commercial scale, they want me to have more and more money sitting on the sidelines that I can't use right. as safety for reserves. Right. Um, so that that's one of the big things. The other thing is supposedly you have non-recourse debt on these larger apartment buildings, but the reality is they have a bad boy carve out. And the bad boy carve outs used to just say, if you manipulate us, if you steal, if you lie, if you commit fraud, then we will go after you. Otherwise, we'll just keep the property if we have to take it back. Right. Now the bad boy carve out, if you miss a single loan payment, you you technically have violated the bad boy carve out and they can still come after you. First one. So that's more of a misnomer. Right, your yeah. mortgage payment is very important, guys. Like make sure that you do that for your commercial building because that one single missed payment could uh, create that. Yes. Yeah. Right, right. But the good thing is, you know, once you have a track record and you've done deals, you know, you've proven yourself enough that they're willing to make many more exceptions for you. So early on, when I had to go through small local banks for small properties, it's like, here's our program, no exceptions, no extra um, amortization period, no changes in our, our fees, um, no interest only. Now, if I find a deal and it's not quite what's going to fly with Fannie or Freddie, I can go to a commercial lender and go, listen, I can bring you a lot of business. I have other loans. I could refinance in the future, but I want you to make an exception on interest only and a longer amortization period and the DSCR and the LTV. And those lenders now generally will accept most of what I ask for as an exception on commercial as long as the deal is good because now they trust me and my track record as an operator. That's awesome. Um, there's a lot of acronym you're throwing at us, which is okay for viewers. We have another episode with the lender will. So like you definitely want to use that as a reference over here because we want to get the most out of it on and uh, without you know <laughs> getting into too much of that acronym details over there. That That's amazing. So you did the first deal. Did you buy that building yourself or did you partnered with people? The first, which deal? The, the first commercial deal that you did. Yeah. So interestingly, this real commercial deal I did was the building, the mixed use building that I bought in 2007 to lease oh. the bottom space to my husband yeah. that had, you know, apartments and had the garages in the back. So that was my first technical commercial deal. Now, the difference in lending between then and now, in 2007, it was the height of the economy and, and money flowed really easily. Right. They gave me 90% LTV financing. So they financed 90% of the, the value of the property. And they let me put 10% down on a credit card. Wow. I got into it 100% financed. 
That doesn't happen anymore. I wish it did for 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 really good wise investors, but it doesn't. Um, but my first larger commercial deal was a seventy-three unit that, that I bought about two and a half years ago as a joint venture with two partners, and that was a Freddie Mac um, small balance multifamily loan. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you kind of got into that because prior to that, you never did take on partners, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Other than your husband, obviously, that's a very important partner in your life. Um, but before that, you were yes. for the most, yeah. yeah, for the most part, that's true. I had one friend of mine from Texas that I knew that we went to church together and he found me on LinkedIn a few years later and saw that I did real estate. So I just put a blurb on my LinkedIn that I was investing in multifamily apartment buildings. And he reached out and said, I'd love to invest in real estate, but I don't have time. Would you ever consider partnering? Well, I knew him really well, you know, in my younger years. And I thought, sure, if you'll put the down payment down, then, and we both sign on the loan, then I'll manage it. We'll split the profits. So we bought a building together and then we bought a second and a third and a fourth. So I had that one partnership where we bought four small uh, multi-unit buildings together, four unit buildings and duplexes. Um, and then eventually I partnered with my sister-in-law, but I think that was after I did the first larger joint venture. Gotcha. 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 And how did you find your partners on the large joint venture? Interesting. It's all about networking, right? So the one thing I wish I would have changed earlier, if there was anything I would have done differently, I would have started partnering with other people earlier in my investments. Um, I went to a networking event. I told you about the first one when the guy stood up and said he wanted to sell his property. And then I started more consistently going um, at least once every three months or so, I would try to go to an, a real estate, local real estate investment club meeting. And I had seen the person I ended up partnering with, we had both been speakers at a lot of local meetup groups. So we did more deals than most of the people around in different capacities. These meetup groups have a lot of property flippers and wholesalers. That's most of what it is. So there weren't so many that were doing, you know, multifamily and, and rental properties. Yeah. So we had seen each other in the same circles for probably two years. And he reached out to me to take me to lunch to talk to him about multifamily and one of his um, realtors that worked for him. And through that conversation, we were like, well, yeah, we both want to start doing larger multifamily deals. And uh, just a couple of weeks later, I had an off-market 73 unit come to me. And you know, he said, I haven't really done larger deals, but I can find the investors because he used investors to fund his flips and they were a home builder and property flipper primarily. Right. So I found this deal. I called him up and said, hey, I found a deal. Do you want to pitch it to one of your investors? And if we can't get one or two investors, we'll syndicate it. He's like, yeah, let's do it. So we sat down and pitched it to an investor. And he said, I, I want to be your only partner in this. I don't want you to syndicate it. So the three of us took down the 73 unit. Nice, nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and so that's all coming coming from your all these, again, these four plexes. They're kind of building a foundation for this. It creates a good reputation yes. for you. And then now you're kind of yes. taking the next step. Um, okay, yes. so fast forward. Tell us a little bit more about your first syndication and your experience with it. Yeah. Sure. So my first syndication, I came in as a co-sponsor. 
Um, the lead sponsor had done a couple of other deals as a co-sponsor, and she found two apartment buildings that were in the Atlanta, Georgia submarket. And so she called me up and said, hey, would you want to partner on this to syndicate? And I said, as long as I have asset management control, where I'm not just raising capital, you know, as long as I can come in and be a bona fide partner and all help with the asset management side, which was the part that she didn't have the experience on, where she did have the experience on the raising capital side, um, you know, I'm, I'm up for it. So we looked at the deal together very, very carefully. Um, I made sure that it was something I was really comfortable with and that my investors would be comfortable with and that I would have that asset management role. And so um, then my challenge was now I have to raise money. I had, you know, one partner that I had bought some things with and I had that joint venture where I got a single investor to fund, fund the deal, but I hadn't gone out to raise money from multiple people. So I didn't know how hard it would be, but at the same time, Eliza, when I was in private banking, we had, we had a quota and this was 25 years ago. Now we had to bring in $3 million a quarter from our investors. So I had to bring in a million dollars a month into the bank through investments of my clients. So I had been used to talking to people about money and investments for decades. Right. And even in private bank, in, um, when I left private banking and I did private placement life insurance with hedge fund wrapped investments, we talked to investors and their brokers about money all the time. So I had the benefit of an experience in the investment world and working with brokers and high net worth individuals for 20 years. Yeah. And, and I did SEC audits for our department. And yeah. so I, I knew the SEC stuff. I knew the SEC rules about money and advertising and marketing. And I knew how to talk about investments with my um, with people. And so that made it really a lot easier for me to raise money on that first deal yeah. because I could talk to them beyond just here's the deal, here's what this apartment could do. It's like I have the experience as an operator and I know what you want as an investor because I've worked with investors my whole life and now I'm a accredited investor as well. So that, you know, again, was kind of the blessing of going through all these hardships was I learned so much in that 20 year period that really equipped me to be good at raising capital and at operating apartment buildings. That's amazing. That's awesome. And so now you have 12,000, 12, sorry, 1200 units uh, in the bell um, and kind of like looking forward in five years or so um, where you kind of see yourself. So I'm going to give you an unconventional answer that I can guarantee most of your probably other syndicators are not saying, right? And they might look at me and go, oh, Anna, you're not pushing yourself enough. But I will say this. I worked 70 to 80 hours a week for, for honestly, probably most of my life between going to school while working full time, only until I had my child, maybe a five-year period, I had one job. After that, I've worked so many hours to get where we are, right? Yeah. So when I retired from my corporate career two years ago, I made a commitment to myself that I would temper my drive to the point that when my kids are home at 3.30, I turn it off and I'm wife and mom. Granted, owning 1,200 apartment units, there are things that come up several right. times a week that I still have to do at night, right? Yeah. But I have made a really concerted effort and a purposeful um, decision to grow to the point that I can handle it from eight o'clock to three thirty every day, 
and not sacrifice any more time with my kids and my family just for the sake of doing another deal, right? So I do not have a, I need to buy X number of doors in order to grow in the next five years. I created the financial freedom. I, I tr- if I never did another deal in my life, Eliza, and I don't say this in a bragging way, but yeah. we would be okay because the hard work that we did to buy, build our own portfolio before I started the joint ventures and before I started the syndication gives me the financial freedom that I can make the decision to say, if I buy this deal or I partner on this syndication and it's going to take 10 more hours a week away from my kids, is it worth the sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. So my goals now aren't, I need X number of doors. It's I'm going to do really good deals with really good people, with really good partners for as many, until I get to the point where I can't handle it in a day. Um, and I have to kind of pivot different opportunities to say, you know, you asked about what's my specialty in multifamily. Truly, I can do it all because I've been in every piece of it. But if somebody brings me a deal where early on, I would be like, I want to asset management and I want to find it and I want to handle the investments and I want to do it all different opportunities. I'm able to say, you know what, I'm really good at this piece of it, but I don't have the time to asset manage it anymore. So let me help you with the due diligence and the acquisition and the loans. And then I'm going to be kind of hands off unless you need me, right? Not hands off, but not the main person in control. So I have the the benefit of being able to continue to do good deals, but really I'm looking to grow legacy wealth at this point, like do the deals for my own family's portfolio and joint ventures that we're going to hold for 10, 20 years, teach my kids. I have a, a senior that's going off to college, pour into them and teach them how to buy these properties, take them down, asset manage, create financial freedom pour into my investors and pour into my students because I'm a real estate coach. Mm -hmm. And when I can find great opportunities that I know can serve our financial and family goals and also be a blessing to other people, other potential partners and investors, then that's a deal I'm going to do. And so my goal is to great deals with great people and to say no to a lot of good things and good deals so that I can only focus on the greatest ones that are going to let me make the greatest impact. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that answer. It's so well-rounded because oftentimes when people reaching financial independence or we are our own entrepreneur, what they don't realize is that people are still working 60 hours to 80 hours a week, um, which may or may not be desired. You know, if someone, their goal was to create their own business and working 80 hours in there, it's great. Um, but if their right. other goal is to spend more time with their family, then it's like you have to evaluate was you go and see what you're doing right now. You're on track with that. It's maybe not always monetary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the whole point of financial freedom, right? Everybody gets into real estate because they think they want financial freedom. But a lot of fi- people find themselves just replacing one job for another. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, it's easier to work a W-2 job than it is to be responsible for your finances and your family's finances and to become an entrepreneur. You're right. going to work a lot more hours as an entrepreneur than you would for most corporate jobs. So you have to do what you really love, but you have to have that balance between, I need a certain amount to be content and live the lifestyle that I want, but money isn't the end goal, right? Money is just a tool. So if I can build something and build that financial freedom, money becomes the tool that allows me to live the life I'm I'm created to live and live my purpose, right? And so 
I get so much more out of um, doing a few deals where I can go create impact on my apartment community and the women and children that live in my complex. For example, I'm working on tools to help them to understand money and to create financial freedom and get out of living in apartments, right? If I can go do that and do two deals a year, I'm living my purpose. Money isn't the the object or goal anymore. Money allows me to do things without regard to necessarily having to make more money. And that's so much, that's what freedom is about. That's what financial freedom is about. Not, you don't want to become a slave to the pursuit of financial freedom. You want financial freedom and the way you build it to serve the life and purpose that you want to live by design. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing wisdom. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, so we're going to wrap up our last, <clears throat> using our last question to wrap up a show over here. We always ask our guests this, which is, um, you have four kids. In fact, you have four, four times that. Uh, four kids. Um, what are you doing right now? You kind of alluded to earlier to help your children to be well equipped with financial knowledge and financial, the, 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 the understanding of financial independence. Yeah. So I, I try in a lot of, you know, little different ways to teach them about money and they, they range from nine to 17. And so, you know, what I do with the little ones is different than with the older ones. Right. But we play cash flow for kids. It always results in tears because whoever loses and is broke cries, yeah. but it, it also teaches them if you think it's hard to lose all your assets and have a ton of liabilities in a game, just wait till it's real life. Right. So we teach them that you want to, when you make money, you don't just go spend it on everything you think is going to bring you temporary joy. You need to save some, you need to invest some, and you need to buy something that will pay for you continuing to consume the things that you think you want, right? So I'm teaching my kids, learn how to buy assets and use the assets to pay for the liabilities. So for example, one of the things that my oldest son and I kind of went round and round about, but he finally gets, right? Yeah. is he turned 16 and thought, well, my parents have the money, they're going to buy me a car. And I said, Dane, why would I buy you a car that you're probably going to wreck three times before, you know, before it's even paid off? Because I, I did, most of us do, right? And then you don't, under, you don't appreciate it, right? So I said, I drove used vehicles and so can you. But what I'll do instead of buying you a car, is you work hard and do it with me and you'll listen to me teach you financial principles and you'll put it into practice. Uh Then the money I would give you in a car, I will use as a down payment towards your first rental property. If you buy a rental property that nets you $300 a month and you want to take that $300 a month and go get a car payment, that's fine because you're choosing to use your asset to pay for your liability. And it's the same thing with college. You know, he had the choice to go to a four-year school that, you know, most four-year schools now are over $100,000 or go to a smaller private Christian school where I could get him a four-year education in a good, solid, accredited school for $40,000 or $50,000. So I said, what if you chose that option instead of going where all your friends are? And I'll take the other $50,000 I would have paid for a basic college education and use that to gift you your down payment on the next eight unit apartment building. And you can come out of school completely financially free because if you make $2,500 a month and all your expenses are $2,500 a month, you're technically financially free. And that 
teaching them to use the assets to create the cash flow that lets them do whatever it is they're excited and passionate about for a living without regard to the money is really what I'm trying to pour into them. Because some people don't want to do real estate full-time. They don't love it like I love it, right? They just want that extra income coming in, but they love what they do for a living. Yeah. If my kids want to be something other than a real estate investor, I want them to do what they love, yeah. but not feel like they have to choose a career because they think that's what's going to create financial freedom or buy happiness. Right. So I think that's the main two things I've tried to just continue to pour into them is a job isn't the way to financial freedom. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurship for many is risky and may not be the way to financial freedom, but real estate creates financial freedom and gives you that extra money to allow you to live the life that, you know, you really want to live. Yeah, do whatever you want to do there. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. These are awesome wisdom. Thank you so much, Anna, for uh, being yeah. on our show today. Um, and how, how does people reach out to you? How do they find you? Great. Thank you so much. So my website is greaterpurposecapital.com. And there you can learn about um, different apartment syndication opportunities that we have where we're really working to buy properties where we're creating returns for our investors, but we're also investing in the lives of our residents and really trying to make a meaningful impact on our apartment communities. Mm-hmm. And you can also find me on Facebook at Anna, R-E-I Mom Kelly. Nice. Oh, great. We're going to put that on our show notes today. And Anna, uh, Anna is a um, very experienced in real estate as you unpack over here, but she also offers coaches as well as she kind of mentioned before. So you definitely want to um, get linked up with her um, and uh, learn more about what she does. Um, awesome. Thank you so much for the show, Anna. Thank you so much for all the wisdom. I learned a lot myself. Um, we're really looking forward to have you back for our other podcasts. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was my honor and I would be glad to do that for you.